6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. These 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years are a single message system. And again, one of the examples of this, of course, is the use of idioms. If you want to give it a fancy name to impress your friends, they call it the principle of expositional constancy. And all that means is these idioms are used, whether it's by uh, Moses or Isaiah or Paul or whoever, consistently. Same idioms are used in general with consistency. As you know, my main preoccupation with the scripture is that these 66 books are a designed message system. I believe every uh, number, every place name, every detail is there by engineering, by design. And one of the great discoveries is to recognize, to, to discover that every page, every story, every detail, every genealogy is designed as an, as an integrated whole. And every detail in this book and every page points to Jesus Christ. That's a glib generalization, but the discovery of how vividly that's true is one of the great exciting things about the book, to realize that it transcends time and space. Not only is it a singular message system, but it has its origin from outside our time domain. It demonstrates its divine origin by writing history before it happens. Not just the ancient history, but history that we're seeing unfold before our very eyes. Whether it be the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the city of Babylon, 62 miles south of Baghdad, or whether it's the emergence of a European superstate, what have you, it's all laid out. And that's what makes it breathtaking. That's one of the things that makes it breathtaking. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to destroy the law, but to, but to fulfill it. He says, not one yacht or one tittle shall pass until all be fulfilled. A yacht or a tittle being a, a crossing of a T or a dotting of an I of the Hebrew script. The rabbis have an expression that we won't understand the text until the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, he will not only interpret the passages, he'll interpret the words. In fact, he'll interpret the very letters. In fact, he'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. And as you know, when I first heard that, I thought it was a colorful exaggeration. But the more I study, the more I discover that it's very literally true, and it's exemplified by Matthew 5, 17, and 18. But here again is one of those, one of those ways you can start to sample that. Take the term stone or rock from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, and you'll discover it all ties together. The, the climax of that, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul really elaborates on that, that the rock in the Old Testament, the wilderness wanderings, speaks of Jesus Christ. When Daniel sees his vision in Daniel chapter 2, the stone that was cut without hands, smiting the image, same stone, stone rock, it speaks of Jesus Christ. You get more mystical, you can take the term blood. The first seven appearances of the word blood in the scripture lay out the whole redemptive plan. God's plan for redemption. You can take almost any one of these words and, and a word study following it through will be revealing. 
Okay, verse 15. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord who hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwelleth in Mount Zion. So again, Isaiah alluding to these two children, one of which... um, uh, speaks of the remnant shall return, and the other one speaking of the coming judgment, the taking of spoil, that's eminent. Verse 19, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto those who are mediums, I think the term today would be channelers. I love this passage, it's great. And, and to, unto wizards that peep and that mutter. You know, <laughs> it's hard to improve on the King James, in my opinion. When they shall say unto you, Seek unto those that are mediums and unto wizards that peep and mutter, should not a people seek unto their God? Should they seek on behalf of the living to the dead? How absurd it is. You know, it's interesting. You know, as I grew up and as I was reading the Bible, learning things, I could never quite relate to some of these injunctions. You go to Deuteronomy 18. In fact, we probably should, just to emphasize what's being talked about here. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. I could never relate to some of these things because they sounded so medieval, so uh, archaic. I never dreamed. I never dreamed. I, I never thought I'd see the day when the widespread major topic among the so-called intelligentsia are those same topics. New labels. We call them channelers, the new age, what have you. It's new labels for the same old heresies. Dangerous stuff. Deuteronomy 18. Verse 9, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who maketh his son or daughter pass through the fire, or who useth divination, or an observer of times, a phrase referring to what we call today astrology, among other things, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter of mediums, or a wizard. That's the ones that go peep and mutter, I guess. Or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the materials that are being distributed, or the exercises and the instruction that go on in the California schools to your kids. But they're taught in school officially, in this state especially, but across the country too, I think, to understand how to find their spirit guide. There are all kinds of exercises that are encouraged in the early grades in school, developmental, presumably, exercises that are setting them up for this kind of thing. If you haven't gotten into it, I encourage you to do some homework, find out what's going on in school, but be prepared for a shock as to what we're the kind of conditioning, the kind of programming that's going on on the kids emerging out of our schools in the state. Frightening. These things are called entries by the technicians. I don't, you may recall the movie uh, The Exorcist. And I remember when Walter Martin was uh, starting to do some research on William Blatty to debunk it, he was startled to find that he'd redone his homework that uh, while he didn't agree with the way the movie went, and the ending particularly, it was interesting that that was based on a case study. Several put together. Valid research. How did all that start? Obviously, the movie took some dramatic 
side roads. But the main point is there's a valid case study in New Jersey. And it's interesting. What starts all that? A Ouija board. These things are dangerous. Fooling around with some of the New Age things are dangerous. It's not just a question of heresy and a divert, you know, heterodox approach to life or whatever. There, it's far deeper than that, far more frightening than that. Dangerous stuff. And if you're interested in this area, there's obviously a number of experts. One of the ones that impressed me is the writings and tapes by Joanna Michelson. That's Hal Lindsey's wife's sister. Bright lady, a lot of background, dynamite stuff. I love one of her recent tapes. Her title of the tape is, Can You Truly Find a Happy Medium? <laughs> Bright, witty gal, lots of solid background. She's got uh, a book about the children, Lambs to the Slaughter. And uh, in any Christian bookstore, ask for the writings of Joanna Michelson and take a look at them. I think you'll find them very competent, quite provoking, very scriptural. Okay, moving on, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And they shall pass through it, greatly distressed and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward, and they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness." We could spend a lot of time on this because obviously it had a local application to the judgment that was coming on, on them that Isaiah was focusing on. It doesn't take much spiritual insight to recognize there's a second application in a global sense, forthcoming. In the 70th week of Daniel sense, in the judgment that's, uh, that's coming. Let's keep moving because in chapter 9 it starts with nevertheless. I'll count that part of chapter 8 or continuation thereof. We'll keep moving here. Nevertheless, the dimness shall be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted. That's your King James. I'll come back to that. Lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the nations. Now, that verse, you can make something of it if you like, but let me save you some time. The word afflict in the Hebrew can be alternately rendered. So in the latter time he hath brought honor on the way of the sea. I know it sounds strange to our ears, but afflict and honor, it's a subtle subtlety of the Hebrew that the, the actual sense of the verse may be quite different than you get it as it would read in the classical English. Now, to get at this, so you don't think I'm just, you know, making this up, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. The first 11 verses are very familiar to you, I'm sure. It's the famous temptation of Jesus Christ, as it's called. And you know, you, you know the three temptations where Satan tempts Jesus Christ, and each and misquoting the Word of God, by the way, so recognize that's one of Satan's favorite tricks. And that reminds you, of course, in your notepads to put Acts 17.11. I haven't mentioned that in a while, but I want to make sure you're kept conditioned to that. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Luke tells you not to believe anything Chuck Mister tells you. Right? It says that uh, Acts 17.11, speaking of the Bereans, these are more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they... In Thessalonica, they had a big revival. Boy, they embraced the word, turned on, great. Then he goes to Bereans. The Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, but they searched the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. And so I want to remind you that's uh, the capstone of our ministry. You know, you've got to distrust me adequately to do your own homework 
And I'll throw enough heresy out to make sure you do, but in any case... But in any case, Satan, of course, misquotes in the first four verses uh, three times, and uh, Jesus answers him each time, quoting. It's interesting that uh, Jesus seems to quote most of the time from the book of Deuteronomy, one of his favorite books. So I commend the book to your study. The book of Deuteronomy is exciting. But we're going to pick it up verse 12. Well, verse 11, of course, the devil leaveth him, but the angels came and ministered to him. And then verse 12, when, now when Jesus had heard that John, that's John the Baptist, was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. See, that's the first link now. You see that when we speak in Isaiah, Zebulun and Naphtali, unless you've got a Bible map, you may not know what area. There are tribal names that they're referring, they're used geographically here. Well, it's, it's around the Sea of Galilee, you see, because that's where Capernaum and all that is. So in other words, uh, leaving Nazareth, which is westward, he, go, he moves eastward to the Galilee area. Uh, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has sprung up. That's the quote. And then he goes on, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. He is going to Israel. And that's often confused because this is often quoted because it's the Galilee of the nations. The Galilee area was regarded by the Jews as a somewhat Gentile area. And across the sea, of course, he had the capitalists. He had a lot of the Roman cities and so forth. So this, it wasn't really Jewish, if you will. And you may recall that the cynical phrase emerges in the Gospels, can any prophet come out of Galilee? You remember that phrase? And the person who said that, the Pharisee who said that, hadn't done his homework because there are two prophets of the Old Testament that came out of Galilee. A guy by the name of Jonah and a guy by the name of Nahum. It's interesting that both those prophets have their ministry to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. The more you think about that, the more stranger it is. You mean in the Old Testament, we have a ministry to the Gentiles. See, normally in the Old Testament, you have the focuses, of course, Israel and things as they impact Israel. But twice we have a prophet raised to go to Nineveh. Jonah, as you recall, goes, not only does he go there reluctantly, to say the least, but then when he has an amazing revival, he's upset about it. First of all, he didn't want to go in the first place. That didn't work. So when he finally does go, he runs around town with the dourly saying, 40 days and comes destruction. That's a real sales pitch, isn't it? <laughs> the king of Nineveh repents and the town puts sackcloth and ashes and they repent. So God forestalls the judgment. What's Jonah's reaction? I knew you'd do that. He wanted them judged. He had no use for the Nineveh. They were, they were his enemies, you know. I suppose the analogy is probably not a far-fetched one, is, a, is to have a Jewish prophet sent to the Nazis. See, he didn't want to, wouldn't be too exactly excited about going. But then when they repent and are saved, that really tees them off. See? <laughs> so, about a hundred years later, Nahum is called to go to Nineveh. And they get the judgment. But they're both, interestingly, both out of Galilee. Anyway, uh, this, is, this, this passage in Matthew alludes to that and lifts off chapter 9, verse 2 on, as we talked about. The other thing I want to mention was that Matthew, if you notice there's a slight difference in language, Matthew is quoting from the Septuagint. Now one of the things, and it's not that big a deal here perhaps, but one thing I want you to keep in mind is that the book of Isaiah that you and I have was translated into Greek three centuries before Christ was born. About 285 B.C. they started, they finished about 270 B.C. The fact that it was in black and white 
three, almost three centuries before Christ was born will be very important to us, not just because of the Messianic prophecies, but because of some other things also that Isaiah will lay out for us in breathtaking detail as we move. But let's keep going so I don't misuse my time here. Verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They dwell in the land of the shadow of the death, and upon them hath the light shined. And of course, that was the the quote we just finished reading in uh, Matthew. Verse 3, thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. In the King James, it says not increased, but most scholars believe that's an error. There's a very subtle detail on one of the Hebrew letters that changes the sense of it. And many of the experts believe that that is one of the subtle errors. It actually turns out that with the knot in there, you can make a sense of it. It has an impact. But uh, the best scholarship comes down on the side that the word knot is not there. It's one of those, those details. But anyway, thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. They rejoice before thee according to the joy in the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Now, that may get confused. The rod of his oppressor, that, that phrase in the Hebrew is equivalent to taskmaster. When I use that phrase, of course, that echoes a little more of Exodus 5 and all of that. When Moses came from Midian, remember, and had his dialogue with Yul Brenner, you know. Okay. <laughs> now, by the way, there are, it's interesting that in verse 5, for every battle of the warrior is confused with noise, the garments are rolled in blood, and this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. It's kind of interesting that if you start studying the Battle of Armageddon, not just in Revelation 16, but also in the Old Testament, those same three elements are there. Your reference, of course, to Revelation 16, starting about verse 14. In Zechariah 14, 13, this idea of the armor and tumult, that makes sense. Isaiah 63 is going to talk a great deal about Jesus Christ's bloodstains as he fights for his people in Isaiah 63. And it also ties to Revelation 14.20. The idea of being rolled in blood is very vivid as we get to Isaiah 63. And then the burning and the fuel of fire and all of that is reminiscent of Isaiah 66 and Joel 2. We're going to talk enough about that later when it gets much more of the main theme, so I won't badger it now, other than just to mention that some of these same patterns are emerging in the language of Isaiah early here. Verse 5, For every battle of the warrior is confused with noise, the garments rolled in blood, and this shall be the burning field. Those three, the structure of that sentence is very much the structure of those prophecies about Armageddon. But all of this is sort of rushing through lightly because we're going to get plenty of this before Isaiah 2. But we're now going to encounter, as Isaiah does, two verses that leap out at you as two of the most elegant verses in the Old Testament. They are rich with uh, significance. By the way, a couple of things. Uh, when you're in Israel, you'll come across the idea that one reason they did, the Jews did not accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah is because he didn't bring them their temple, you see. And it's interesting, they're setting themselves up for one who is going to be accepted as the Messiah who will bring them their temple, okay? But part of that whole idea is today they argue that the Messiah isn't the Son of God, he's just a great leader. That's the, con- the conception is altered. The idea that the Messiah of Israel is to be the Son of God is clear in the Psalm. Psalm 2 makes, hammers that home. Well, all through. You can, you, can, you can make a whole study of the predictions of the Messiah. The foot, I call it the footprints of the Messiah in the Old Testament that he indeed is the Son of God. One of those passages right here before us. 
Verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah. You've heard it a dozen times. You've seen it on Christmas cards. And it's tragic that sometimes the most familiar verses are the ones we skip over because we don't really catch everything that's there. Let's try to look at it freshly. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Let's just start with that. It's very typical in Hebrew poetry to have two ideas in juxtaposition. You and I think of poetry in sense of sound or meter. And the Hebrew does too occasionally, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis in Hebrew poetry is the juxtaposition of ideas. You notice that a lot in the, all through the Proverbs. They're all structured that way. They, they seem to say the same thing twice, two different ways. Sometimes they're the same thing twice, and sometimes they're the opposites. But they're always two ideas in juxtaposition. Psalms, you see that too, but the Proverbs probably is the most vivid, particularly in English. Well, here you have, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Very Jewish kind of sounding phrase, but recognize that's not the same thing. For unto us a child is born, that speaks of his humanity. For unto us a son is given, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, right, that he gave us his only begotten son. It's right here in the first few sentences. A child is born, a son is given. It's an echo, in a sense, of Isaiah 7.14 that we spent time on last time. The virgin birth. Then it goes on. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. When did that happen? When did Jesus Christ have the government on his shoulder? The only thing I remember on his shoulder was a cross. huh? When did Jesus Christ have the government on his shoulder? Don't think he did. That's yet future. And be on the alert for the heresies that are again emerging in the Christian church. These are heresies that almost destroyed human history in the last 19 centuries. The idea that God is through with Israel. Nonsense. Those arguments should have ended on May 14th of 1948. God is not through with Israel. Paul spent three chapters in Romans hammering that home. That Israel is set aside temporarily. Israel is blinded until the fullness of Gentiles be come in. Come in where? Remember Romans 11.25, we quote it all the time. For blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? The church. Come in where? And as I've mentioned several times, but I'll just hammer it again. I believe God's dealing with Israel and the church is mutually exclusive. church was not started until Israel had rejected the kingdom. The church will be complete before God once again takes up Israel. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back twice, once for his church and once for Israel. He's coming back to rule the world through Israel. Strange idea. There are people around selling all kinds of heresies that the promises to Israel devolve on the church. Because Israel rejected her Messiah, she forfeited those promises, and those promises now are in the church, and they speak of spiritual Israel and so forth. Seventy-three times in the New Testament, Israel is mentioned always nationally. Always, well, there's one that's maybe a little gray, but 72 of the 73 clearly nationally, national Israel. Jesus Christ speaks twice in the seven letters, seven churches, of those that would call themselves Jews and are not, those that would make the church Israel, which is not. Paul divides the world into three categories Jews, Gentiles, and the church. If you're in the church, you're neither Jew nor Gentile, you're in his body. Don't get confused on that point. Jesus Christ says, those who say they are Jews and are not are the synagogue of Satan. That's Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. He says the same thing again in Revelation 3, chapter, verse 9. So be on the alert for some strange ideas that are widely sold, widely sold on T 
TV and radio and tapes and books. Don't be conned by the Reconstructionists or the Dominion Theologists. If you want to do your homework in this area, one of the outstanding books is Hal Lindsey's Road to Holocaust. Those doctrines led to the Holocaust in Europe, and those doctrines are going to lead to the Holocaust again. It's going to make the last one look like a small beginning. You often see on, in Israel, never again. Sorry, wrong. Daniel in chapter 12 says there would be a time of trouble yet future that the world had never seen and never would see again. And Jesus quoted that as being yet future from the, time, from the abomination of desolation. In his private briefing to his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25, the secret briefing he gave to Peter, James, and John and Andrew. And the key, the key verse of that is verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Highly technical thing, but learn what it is. Do your homework. That ushers in a time of trouble that the world has never seen to that day. It's interesting, of course, Jesus was crucified uh, 38 years later. The Roman legions under Titus Vespasian leveled the city. It's interesting that Caligula ordered Petronius to put his image in the Holy of Holies. He tried. That would have been the abomination of desolation. Petronius found out the reaction of the Jews and decided not to do it. Caligula ordered his death when he found out. He obviously was angry. Caligula died. The message at sea that got to Judea on Caligula's death preceded by some strange set of circumstances the, the, the order for Petronius's death. And so he never was executed. But it's interesting that the Romans tried to execute an abomination of desolation. Those days never pulled it off. Abomination of desolation never happened. It's going to happen. And television coverage is predicted. News at 11. Huh? Verse 6. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, that's a strange idea. Is that a New Testament idea? You bet it is. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. I've mentioned this before, but I'll keep it in front of us because there are those that are going to try to confuse you on this subject. When Gabriel is telling Mary about the birth of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1, in verse 32, he says, Gabriel tells Mary, He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's not the throne of God the Father that he's on now. It's the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob for a thousand years. Is that what it says? Forever. And ever. And ever. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.